Um, Death in Venice, which we're going to see tonight, and which you can see behind me, uh, pictures from tonight's production, is, of course, Benjamin Britten's last opera. In September 1970, Britten asked Mathanry Piper, who'd written the librettos for The Turn of the Screw and Owen Wingrave, both stories by Henry James, to make him a libretto out of Thomas Mann's novella, Death in Venice. Mann had published Death in Venice originally in 1912. At the time, he'd been deeply affected by the death of Gustav Mahler in 1911 and had become fascinated by the history of the elderly Goethe's romantic infatuation and the proposal of marriage to an 18-year-old baroness Ulrika von Ledetsov. But it seems to have been a fragment from the writer's own autobiography that got the story really going. The boy in the story, Taggio, who obsesses the writer, Gustav van Aschenbach, in the story, is in fact based on a boy who Mann had seen during a visit to Venice in 1911, and Mann's wife would later confirm that. Britain and Piper remained faithful to the central narrative of Mann's story. Von Aschenbach is an admired and an honoured writer, but suffering from writer's block when the opera begins. Meeting a stranger in a cemetery in Munich, he decides that maybe a holiday in the south uh, is what he needs, and eventually he arrives in Venice on the Lido, where he sees an amazingly beautiful Polish youth staying in the same hotel as he is booked into with his mother, two sisters, and a governess. All of these are non-singing parts in the opera, and Tadzio is, of course, a role for a dancer. In time, von Aschenbach admits that he's fallen in love with the boy, and so is torn by the two sides he finds in his own nature, the cool, controlled Apollonian and the dangerous uh, Dionysian. And, of course, both gods appear in the opera. Venice, however, itself is in the grip of cholera, and it is cholera which kills von Aschenbach as he sits on the shore, looking out over the Venetian lagoon, watching Tadzio in the distance on the seashore. Benjamin Britten had wanted to make an opera from Thomas Mann's novella for some time, but the film director, Lucchino Visconti, held the film rights and Britten decided to wait. And also, Britten decided never to see the film either. At an early stage in composition, he was told by his doctors that a heart operation was going to be essential if he was to live for more than two years. But Britten was determined to finish this opera, and he worked urgently to complete it before going into hospital here in London for surgery. Colin Graham, who directed the first production of Death in Venice at the Snape uh, Maltings on the 16th of June 16, uh, 1973, has written, perhaps of all his works, this one went deepest into Britain's own soul. There are extraordinary cross-currents of affinity between himself, his own state of health and mind, Thomas Mann, Aschenbach, and Peter Piers, who must have had to tear himself in three to reconstitute himself as the principal character. Well, we've not three, but four guests tonight to explore Britain's last opera, Death in Venice. Deborah Warner will be there shortly, who's directed this production for English National Opera. We've the baritone Charles Johnson, who's covering the seven roles of The Traveller, the elderly fop, the old gondolier, the hotel managers, the hotel barber, and the leader of the players, and the voice of Dionysius. <laughs> and we're also joined by Murray Hipkin, a member of the music staff here at English National Opera, who's playing in the pit piano in this particular production. But our first guest is Philip Reid, who is English National Opera's programme editor and co-editor of The Complete Letters of Benjamin Britten and the editor of Selected Letters of the Composer and The Travel Diaries of Peter Pierce. Will you please welcome Philip Reid.
Philip, do we know how long Britain had been thinking of making an opera out of Thomas Mann's story? Uh, yeah, he'd been thinking about the opera for quite a long time, from about the mid-1950s, actually. He owned a copy of the uh, novella from the 1940s, the um, Low Porter translation, and several copies in German as well, actually. Um, and it was not unusual for Britain to have an idea about a subject and let it sit for a long time, uh, maybe 15, 20 years before he actually uh, gets around to deciding now is the moment to write the piece. And with, with Death in Venice, it was really, um, became more active in his mind again in the mid-1960s. Is there a reason why it suddenly came back to the forefront of his mind? Well, I think uh, he could see that uh, he wanted to create a great role for Peter Pierce, and Pierce's career as a singer, I mean, by the mid-1960s, Pierce was in his mid-50s, and Britain, being the kind of composer he's, what he was, always had lots of projects on the stocks and, and was working on projects. So even in the mid-1960s, he knew by then he'd got two more church parables to write, which had roles for peers in. He'd also got Owen Wingrave to write for the television, uh, for BBC television. So you could see that by the time he actually really got round to it, it was going to be maybe the early 1970s, by which time peers would have turned 60. And, you know, in the normal course of events, most singers' careers are usually coming... Uh, to a conclusion by then, um, and so he felt, you know, he really had to get on with it. Is there also a sense in which by the late 60s and certainly into the 70s, the relationship between uh, von Aschenbach and Taggio is somehow a more acceptable relationship to write an opera around than it might have been in the 1940s or 50s? Oh, I'm sure that's uh, definitely a factor. Um, uh, certainly, yes, yes. How closely was Britain involved, as far as we know, in the shaping of the libretto with the family piper? Oh, very closely. Um, Britain always worked, worked uh, hand in glove with his librettists. Uh, he and Piper planned the opera together. Uh, and if you, if you see any of the um, libretto drafts, uh, the typed drafts, which uh, Mrs. Piper would have supplied to Britain, they are covered covered in Britain's handwriting, where he is uh, insisting on changes, additions, alterations, cuts. I mean, he might, in a first draft, he might, he might rewrite an entire scene himself. There's a sort of weird uh, maxim with Britain that quite often I find the most memorable lines in any of his operas are actually ones words that he's written himself and not ones that have come from the librettists. But, it, you know, he always enjoyed working with librettists. I mean, he would never be someone who'd write his own libretto. He liked to work with a librettist. So, in a sense, it's the partnership that, that, yeah. that, that he liked. Yeah, he, he, loved, he loved the partnership. He loved always working as part of a, 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 part of a team, really. Um, and with, with Death in Venice... The starting point is, is the Thomas Mann text, and he had several copies of that. The English translation he worked with is, is marked up quite, quite carefully where he felt that the scenes were. He underlines passages in the text. He, even when they've gone quite a long way down the line of composing the piece, um, he might come back to something and say, I think we need more here. And actually, if you go back to Thomas Mann, I think we should look at you know, this particular passage. I think the Fidus monologue was one of the areas where he went back to Mann again. Um, so a bit like Verdi and his librettists, Britain was, was controlling pretty much what he wanted to have. 
Do we know whose idea it was to elide the various characters that are eventually allocated to the baritone, all the way from the mysterious stranger uh, in the cemetery through eventually to the, 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 mm. hair, the hairdresser and the porters and so forth? Well, the idea really is already there in Thomas Mann. Um, that is quite clear in Mann that, <clears throat> that some of these characters are the same figure. Uh, and all uh, that Piper and Britton did was to expand it to include other uh, lesser characters, if you like. It, it certainly then gives a major role for another singer in the opera. Once the libretto <clears throat> was finished, what do we know about the composition period? The composition period um, with Britton... This opera is slightly unusual. Normally, Britain operas, he would spend maybe one or two years, perhaps, on the libretto. I don't mean every day on the libretto. I just, you know, it keeps coming back. He sends his librettist away. They make revisions. They bring them back. Uh, they have working weekends together up in Oldborough. Yeah, I like this. I don't like this. He tended to wait until the entire libretto was finished before he started composition. And that's true of, of Death in Venice, but also um, the composition process of Death in Venice is slightly different to other Britain operas in that Britain always worked on a composition draft. There are not really you know, little fragmentary sketches. He, he worked on a, on a composition draft and he started at the first bar and ended on the last bar. He didn't dot around or he didn't start in act two or think, oh, I know what to do there, I'll, I'll, I'll do that scene instead. He always started at the beginning and ended at the end. And the composition draft looks a bit like a vocal score um, that the vocal lines have their own, their own staves and the orchestral texture, the orchestral music is on maybe two or three or four staves. It looks a little bit like a piano reduction, but it isn't that. And it, as he's composing, he's very carefully marking in um, the instrumentation. Where Death in Venice is slightly different from, say, Owen Wingrave or, or Peter Grimes even, um, is that he has a sketchbook for Death in Venice, which is unusual for his operas. And in that sketchbook, which he bought in Venice on a, on a research trip that he and uh, Mifamui Piper, and Mifamui Piper's husband, John Piper, who was the designer of the original production, they all went to Venice. Uh, and Britain took this sketchbook, bought, bought this sketchbook there, initially to start jotting down things that were occurring to him. For example, as part of their research, they found an elderly gondolier who remembered the old gondolier's cries. And Britain being Britain, he just had to hear it. He could write that straight down. And so there's a little bit of kind of authenticity, if you like, in the opera. You hear them in the opera. Um, but also, you know, other ideas were occurring to him. And he just kept that sketchbook going as, a, as an aid memoir, really. Because it's, you know, it's a very long opera. It's a very big project. Uh, and uh, it helped him, really, to, to shape it. But that, that's slightly unusual. As Breton is racing to complete this uh, opera, as I've said, because he knows he's going to have a, a heart operation, and he knows, possibly, the consequences may not be good, do you have a sense that, that the kind of presence of possible death actually runs right the way from the beginning to the end of this opera? Yeah, I, th I think that is there in the background in Britain's mind, although... <sighs> To be frank, until he had the operation and they saw what happened in the operation, he thought he was going to get better again. Everyone thought he was going to be better again. So um, he went to that operation, okay, he had to finish the opera because there was just the possibility he might not 
survive even, I suppose. Um, and he wanted that piece to be there for peers to sing. But, you know, even, even the day before the operation, the view was he's going to be better. And, you know, after a normal recovery, he'll continue. Uh, alas, that, that wasn't the case. Philip, thank you very much. You stay with us. We're joined now by Charles Johnston, who is covering the seven roles again, the traveller, the elderly fop, the old gondolier, the hotel manager, the hotel barber, the leader of the players and the voice of Dionysus, and by Murray Hipkin, a member of the music staff here at English National Opera, and who plays the production of this penny. Would you please welcome Charles Johnston and Murray Hipkin. Charles, tell us what you're going to sing first, before uh, you sing. Aschenbach, uh, as Christopher has indicated, finds himself in a cemetery in Munich and muses upon his writer's block and possibly his forthcoming death. And from, the, from his subconscious emerges a voice which sends him off on this journey from which he will not return. <coughs> A wilderness swung with fearful growth, monstrous and thick, and heavy flowers crowd in the steaming marsh. Trees distorted as a dream drop Naked roots into a glass green pool Where float great milk-white blooms And at the stagnant edge Huge birds stand hunched and In the knotted bamboo grove, a terror and a sudden predatory gleam, the crouching tiger's eyes, marvels unfold, marvels unfold, marvels unfold. No boundaries hold you go travel to the south great poets before you have listened to its voice he obeys the voice departs on his journey and arrives having had a tricky ch uh, crossing to Venice at the Hotel Les Bains on the Lido, where he's met by another manifestation of the baritone characters, the hotel manager. We are delighted to greet the signore to our excellent hotel. Trust the signore had a pleasant journey. He will have a pleasant sojourn, I am sure. 
The Signore was wise to come to the Lido by gondola. Not so fast as the boat, but pleasanter, far pleasanter. Just so, but a happy chance nonetheless. And here is the room as you commanded. And look, Signore, the view. The view of the beach from our rooms is superb, from this one especially. And here, and here, Signore, outside your room, but private, unfrequented, you may sit and see the world go by. Men of letters like the Signore take pleasure in the contemplation of their fellows. For the Signore is well known in our country. Prego, egregio, Signor von Aschenbach. His journey has begun. <laughs> Charles, thank you very much. What do you see as the connection between the characters that you sing? I, I think the, the genius of this piece is that actually the connection is made in the audience's minds, which, which is, um, makes their engagement in the, in the whole process so much stronger. Uh, and as, as, as the person who's singing all these roles, the moment you start thinking that there's, there's, they are the same person, you're, you're, you're sort of kind of short-circuiting the effort that the audience should be making to, to engage in what's going on in Aschenbach's mind. It's much more his narrativization of, of his experience than it is some supernatural monster like Tales of Hoffman or, or you know, with a lot of identical um, uh, different roles played by the same character. But nonetheless, do you think that Dionysius is, 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 in some sense, central to all of these characters? The sense of abandon um, that is both thrilling but terrifying to uh, the notion of descent in, in a moral and, indeed, a physical sense, possibly. Absolutely. Um, Dionysius is, is, is also a creative spring in, in so, so many ways. Naschenbach's one of main, uh, his, his critical lines in his, one of his first uh, recitatives is he says, his imagination is the servant of his will, which is a statement of such extraordinary hubris that he's bound to get his comeuppance. And of course Dionysus pops out of, out of the woodwork, as it were, to deliver that comeuppance uh, in, in spades. So um, they are the same character, but they are utterly different. And they are in his mind, and they are in his spirit, and will well up since he spent such a lot of his artistic career suppressing them. The, the singing is demanding enough, but surely the acting is equally demanding. You've got almost quick change as you slip between these various characters. I, I'm, I'm I am covering the role, um, uh, and uh, the singing is hard, the acting is tricky, but you've just got to see Andrew Shaw in between scenes running around like... <laughs> Running around, trying to go wigs on in costume, and 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 uh, he looks remarkably cool backstage. But I think he's had a bit of a rehearsal. <laughs> <laughs>
do you, do you have to find a different vocal style for each of the characters too? Is no, it? no, no, because I mean, Britain does it for you. Um, and the, the characters are very beautifully delineated. There's a lot of um, sort of, mo- I don't know, um, uh, outre vocal techniques. There's quite a lot of falsetto in the role. The, the, the elderly fop who appears in the second scene is, is, uh, is, is an outrageous, outrageous creation, but uses a lot of falsetto. And of course, as we'll, in the second uh, excerpt, which we're going to sing, the, the hotel manager also manages a little bit of falsetto towards the end um it's it's uh yes yeah, you you go mad if you if you tried to find seven seven different vocal techniques for it britain does it for you tell us then what are you going to do next Chris? the next uh, minutes? We, we we move into the second act where ashenbach has confessed to himself his love for this boy and uh, part of the process of him making himself suitable for the boy is he visits the hotel barber for a bit of a facelift. <laughs> yes, a very wise decision, if I may say so. One should not neglect oneself in one's middle life. Everyone should make a stand against advancing years. Guardate, signore, egregio signore. Just a trifle Due to lack of interest You would not neglect your health, your teeth Then why refuse the use of cosmetics, cosmetics Nothing ages a man like grey hair Permit me to aid it just a little Just a little Very wise Magnificent All the difference Va bene, signore. Now, if he were to tone up the skin, oh, just a little, a very little. Signore, my forte, to bring back the appearance of youth. Va bene, signore. Give some brilliance to the eyes. Nothing brightens a face like the eyes. Head back, signore. Quite, quite still. An excellent subject, if I may say so. Guardate, signore. Va bene, signore. Prego, prego, a masterpiece, a masterpiece. Now the signore can fall in love with a good grace. Prego, 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 prego. Addio, signore, egregio signore. Ashenbach goes out on the town. And Venice is still as hot and humid and unpleasant as it was before when he visited in the first act. He's got his makeup on, but somehow tired and confused, he sits down on, a, on the pavement and eventually finds himself back at the Hotel des Bains, where everybody has left. It's not sure whether they've died or whether they've just gone back to their uh, countries. He makes his final meeting with the hotel manager. from the land The air is 
hot and unnatural. The time of politeness and welcome to our excellent hotel is over. Where is the baggage of the Lady of the Purse? Were you not told to bring it down? When guests arrive at my splendid hotel, I welcome them. I show them the view. And when they go by choice or chance, I'm here to say adieu. Yes, Senor von Aschenbach, the season comes to an end. The Signore will be leaving us soon. We must all lose what we think to enjoy the most. Charles Johnson, thank you very much. Indeed, stay with us, please. Murray Hipkin, um, what kind of orchestra does Britain ask for in Death in Venice? Well, the um, main components of the orchestra are really quite modest. Uh, there's a classical wind section, a wind octet with doubling on piccolo and uh, bass clarinet. Um, double brass, except just one tuba. It's fairly normal. Um, Britain has strings, of course. Um, he adds piano and harp. But then the big surprise is in the percussion section, which is probably one of the biggest he used in any of his operas. And mo a lot of tuned percussion. Um, off the top of my head, uh, uh, marimba, xylophone, glockenspiel, tuned gongs. Um, uh, uh, vibraphone said that already. Anyway, loads and loads of tuned percussion. And how does he... Use? What kind of sound world does he create with this rather, not only the large percussion, but also the doubling of, of, mm. of brass and woods? Well, the interesting thing is that he only uses the full orchestra in about three times in the whole evening. It's, it's really composed uh, very economically. It's, it's, it's like a chamber piece, but it's just, he's just got more instruments available to use in different chamber groups. So, in the, in the, for example, in the um, barber scene we just did, the, the little... All that stuff is just on the on the woodwind, and the strings are, are reserved for when the um, barber is massaging his ego or his hair or whatever he's doing. <laughs> um, so, so he, he uses small groups like that. The um, the percussion and the piano are used a lot together, um, and one of the very significant and, and, and you'll you'll hear for yourselves tonight very exotic things is that is that he uses the percussion in in uh, in a way in the gamelan. From the uh, from Bali and Java, and uh, you'll hear a lot of the uh, those colours coming into into the orchestration, um, usually associated with tajo, sometimes associated with um, the, um, the the the, the uh, cholera from the Asiatic cholera. And you heard at the beginning of the first thing Charles sang that the traveller. 
that kind of theme there, which right at the beginning, the traveler from the east he talks about, and then we know that the cholera has come from the east as well, and, and there's this whole kind of dual thing going on. Um, and at the very end, after the vision of Dionysus and Apollo, when Dionysus overcomes Apollo, the tuba blurts out this theme of, of the, um, the, if you want to call it the plague theme, which, which the travellers introduced right at the beginning. You absolutely can't miss it. So he uses, uh, he uses these themes and these different groups of instruments for, for, and to take us to places. And in the same way that the production, um, in many ways, visually, is very sparse. There are a lot of wonderful, very succinct visual clues to where we are, because it's a very cinematic piece. Always going from one place to the next, with very little music or very little time to get from one to the other. And, and it's the same orally, that you hear these little things that will just trigger a memory. So you know if you hear the piano and the strings playing a little triplet theme, we've had a whole, right near the beginning, it, it symbolizes journey over water, the gondola. And we have, say, two pages of it the first time. And then at the very end, we have two bars of it. And it's, it's, um, it's full of little motifs. I wouldn't say there are sort of strongly developed themes, um, musical themes in the piece, but lots and lots of little prompts and little motifs coming backwards and then eventually intertwining. And the plague one kind of takes over them all in the end. Kind of eats its way into the whole, the whole yeah, piece. Yeah, absolutely. Murray Hipkin, thank you thank very you. much indeed. Um, our final guest this evening is the director, Deborah Warner, who has revived her original production of Death in Venice, which she made here for English National Opera. Will you please welcome Deborah Warner? Deborah, coming back to work on, on, a, on a production you've already made, is there something exciting about having an opportunity to, to do other things, to rethink things, to remake? Of course, yeah. I think that's why you, why you do something again. Um, in the hope that you can carry what you found before and take it further. Um, what was unusual here is that we did this here seven years ago, but we have been to, to Brussels in between and then to Milan, to La Scala. So, there's something disturbing, of course, about it too, because you got somewhere, perhaps, on the third outing, and uh, you want to be sure you're going to get there again and to go beyond that if you possibly can. Um, and also new cast members. Did you change a lot? I think things... Um, yes, because we have... Every time we've done it, we've had a new Tatsio, and um, that relationship in the centre of the piece really the great relationship in the middle of the piece has to be to be re-examined and re-found and re-explored every time you have one. This chap is actually older than any of the other Tatsios we had. Um, and that's quite interesting and that's brought, brought a new dynamic there. Um, I, think that is the, I think that is the very big change, yeah. There's this kind of standard view and there has been for a long time, but this is yet another exploration of Britain's chosen theme of the corruption of innocence. Is that, mm. is that your view of what's really going on here? I, I'm not sure it is. Um, I, I'm, I noticed that question with interest because I was tipped off that it was coming. Um, <laughs> Surely not. <laughs> um, and I, I wondered how I'd answer it, and I'm still not quite sure. I, I, I don't think that is the theme here, no. Um, I think if there is... I think it's something else. I think it's about enlightenment. I think it's about a space that somebody didn't think they had in them being opened up. Um, I don't think that's a loss of innocence theme, myself. I, I also wonder whether it's Venice or whether it's Tazio that in the end undoes von Aschenbach. Well, cholera. 
Yeah, I mean, I think I think he is undone by them all. Um, he's undone by having made the wrong holiday choice, sub, which isn't which isn't Venice, in fact. It, and it's the it's the one thing that the the novella deals with, and the opera doesn't. You know, he goes to this terrible resort first off, as we've all done. We've all made that mistake. Think I can't have a holiday here. I have to go somewhere else. So he then gets on that that dirty, muddy, terrible steamer and, and, and steams off to Venice, which he thinks will be perfect. And of course, it's immediately imperfect, terrible weather, terrible, terrible heat. Um, so I think it's a series, his downfall is a series of things, but it's, it's like King Lear, isn't it? You know, did he die of just getting cold on the heath or because Goneril chucked him out of the house? I mean, it's, you know, it'd be, a it'd be a difficult thing to put on a death certificate, wouldn't it? But I guess he died of cholera. But did he get cholera because he ate the strawberries very early on in the opera? Or did he get cholera because he stayed too long? And I suppose he stayed too long because he didn't want to go. And um, he didn't want to go because he'd fallen in love. And, uh, and, 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 and so it got complications. Am <laughs> I allowed to, to, to be editorial and say that what I, what I love about the Venice that you've created then and seven years ago and again now is a sense in which it, there are no clear frontiers, that the sea, the sky, the earth, all melt into each other. You don't know where you are. There are no boundaries. Is that deliberate? In a way, that reflects what his problem, Aschenbach's problem is. Yes. Yes, yes, perhaps. There's also great beauty, of course. I mean, once, once everything clears, there's immense beauty there. Once, he, once, once it is the Venice he always hoped it would be, and, and, and the light clears and, 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 and the atmosphere clears and the smell goes away, there's, there's immense beauty. So he does actually have the time he wanted for a moment. But, you know, that city, it's a, it's a fearful place, that city, isn't it? It's both unbearably beautiful and unbearably dangerous. So it's, it, is, it, is, it is the perfect, um, perfect coffin <laughs> for this when, piece. When we arrive at the video, is it significant that the, when the, the, the guests at the hotel speak, they mm. are in fact the chorus and they sing together, that the family of Tazio is entirely silent. Uh, he's a dancer and in the original production, um, his mother mm. was a dancer too. Mm. Uh, mm. Uh, uh, but the servants are characterised as individuals. If you think about it, it's, it's curious who has a voice in this opera beyond Paul Aschenbach himself. It is. I mean, the voice that really counts, I suppose, is the English clerk, isn't it? You know, this is the one creature who has an aria, really, in, in, in the piece, and a magnificent aria, and he's the man who tells, who tells the truth. Um, he's, a, he's, a, he's almost a religious figure, in a way. Um, I think you know, what his truth lies in there, and he does, he does deliver it. He does deliver the, the warning. Um, I think it is quite odd who he gave a voice to. I think it is genuinely odd. I think it's strange he gave the hotel porter a voice. It's not a revelatory voice. It doesn't tell us a lot about hotel porters. You know, he doesn't go deep into the heart of that. But I think, I think of course, he gave the biggest voice of all uh, after Ashenbach to the silent creatures. I mean, they are terribly loud um, throughout the night. You know, they speak very loudly in their silence. So it's a, it's, it's a very clever way of dealing with the family. Um, he might have made the Polish mother sing. He could have. But um, there, is, there is a perfection isn't, in, in, in their silence. And of course, you know, Tatsio is a dream. I mean, it, it is true that Tatsio notices him twice, but possibly 
when Tatsuo finishes his holidays and goes home and somebody asks him how it was, he won't say, well, there was a funny German bloke staying at the hotel who kept on sitting in the edge of the foyer smoking cigarettes. I doubt he noticed. That's the, that's the truth of it. You and your designer have beautifully kept the period of the opera as the period just before the First mm. World War. Were you mm. ever remotely tempted to move it to another period, or does it belong absolutely to that kind of lost world from about 1905 to mm. 1914? Well, it's terribly important for, 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 for Thomas Mann, but I, 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 critical that it's on the brink, really. It's a moment before, before all changes. But I... I think it would be very hard to conjure that dream um, without the belly pot behind it. I, I don't know what period you choose and for, for what purpose. Um, it's, it's, it, it has to shimmer in that haze. I mean, I think Venice always looked best roughly at that period, didn't it? And, and it would be impossibly difficult to bring it now. I mean, you would, it would beg a question about the nature of the way that the the rich holiday, and although we've met it again somewhere, it's probably you could find some very swanky hotels around Europe where you could just about do it. But um, Ashenbach going on holiday alone, that being perfectly fine, that not being peculiar, nobody particularly noticing. I, I don't know. I think it would be a mistake to drag it into another period. It was Frederick Ashton who choreographed mm. uh, originally the ballet at the end of the, of the first half of mm. the opera. Um, you have changed that significantly, uh, I think, haven't you? And I wonder. I have a new choreographer. Uh, but you felt? Did you feel that you wanted to be less, as it were, choreography and more something else—a kind of game of contest? I mean, I, I didn't see the original production. I, 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 I saw photographs of it. I, I, I think I would find that choreography choreography quite difficult. Um, I think what's wonderful about what Kim Brandstrup's done is that the, you're never quite sure at the point at which the boys' games, which you know, playing beach games, ball games on the beach, at which point that moves from the choreography of the every, every day to dance. I mean, that's a very, a very delicious thing, and I think that's an important thing, so that that, that again is part of the dreamscape of it all that as Ashenbeck lies on the, on the beach and, and, and falls asleep, so suddenly these boys, who are just having a sports day, I imagine, you know, sponsored by the Hotel de Bain under 18-year-old under sports day, suddenly becomes this, um, this Grecian Olympic feast and festival. And it, does, it has to slide into that. Um, I'm not a great lover of ballet, so it was my great terror when I knew I was going to do this piece that there was really a ballet in the middle of it, and I said I couldn't, I couldn't do that. And it was Nicholas Payne, actually, who said, well, you should meet Kim. He might change your mind. And that he's really changed my mind about dance, Kim. I mean, it is absolutely astonishing what he's done with this piece, and I think every time we've come to it, that has leapt, leapt forward, because, of course, every time he has... He has new boys, and he has an amazing collection of creatures. You know, we've got a classically trained Tatsuo at the Royal Ballet, but we've also got hip hoppers, and we've also got martial art kids, and you know, so they're a real, they're a real disparate and wonderful group, I think. Deborah, thank you very much. We've time, a little time left, so if people would like to ask questions, there is the usual roving mic. Put your hand up, catch my eye, and I will direct the mic towards you. A question here. 
you. Um, in Philip Reed's wonderful edition of the Britain um, uh, Letters, there's a linking narrative in which uh, Britain's publisher, Donald Mitchell, goes to see Katia Mann in Zurich. And she says to him, uh, Mr. Mitchell, um, I wouldn't want you to think that my husband loved, uh, fell in love with boys. Please don't think that. It was nothing like that at all. The question is, to what extent did Britain know the truth? That, that apart from the death at the end, almost everything in Death in Venice, including a lot of the minor details, uh, actually happened to Thomas Mann. Well, there's no documentary evidence to suggest he knew, but I imagine he did know. I can't think why he wouldn't. I, in the program, I, I, I attempt a kind of weird article about suggesting that although they, we don't know that Thomas Mann and Britain never met, Britain certainly knew his second son, Golo. He knew Erica Mann. He knew people who knew the Manns. Um, Katya Mann certainly came and saw the production uh, at the age of 91 in mm -hmm. 1973 and wrote a really, really very, very touching and, and, and beautiful letter in response to it. Um, so, uh, you know, it, ha it had that kind of imprimatur, as it were. Um, but whether... I can't believe that Britain didn't know. I mean, he must have known, surely. Well, he was eight years old, the original Tatsu. I mean, that, that is... Yeah, that's that... That is... I think that's an issue. Mm. Yes, I suppose it is. He was uh, a tiny little boy. And there's a historical footnote there, too, because they, the, he was eventually identified. Yeah. And, of course, just as you said, he remembered absolutely nothing about mm. this at all in old age. He's a very curious-looking creature, you know. He's a round-faced, podgy little thing with, with blonde curls who looks like those late 1890s Pears soap adverts. <laughs> Just proving that taste has changed. <laughs> Do we have another question? In, in, the, in the... With us, it's in the very there, yeah. Um, the avant-garde uh, often uh, called Benjamin Britten uh, conservative eclectic. Uh, would you agree that Benjamin Britten is a traditionalist? Who's it for? Who would you like to answer? <laughs> uh, Philip. Oh. Oh, excellent. I, 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 can, <laughs> sen I, I can sense the relief up here, I can tell you. Well, it's very interesting. Uh, I think that was, I mean, that's true. Uh, the the avant-garde would have thought... I, I remember once going to uh, a bit of personal biography, once going to a, a huge exhibition in Basel of 20th century music manuscripts which belonged to Paul Zacher. And I was with Donald Mitchell, actually, who was Britain's publisher, who just mentioned, and to our elbow was Pierre Boulez uh, because some of his manuscripts were there. And... Um, we got to the case with the Britain manuscripts in, and Bullish just looked down and walked straight past. <laughs> um, I think that's true. I mean, the avant-garde did, did certainly uh, not really have a lot of time for Britain, but actually I think the interesting thing about Britain was that he just held to what he believed in, and he, he had a kind of uh, expanded tonality. I mean, he was never going to be a 12-note composer, but the first thing that Murray played and Charles sang, Marvels Unfold, are the first four notes of a 12-note uh, row, which appears in the opera. You know, for Britain, these were just kind of armories. He could use them. And 12-notes, 12 12-note 12 music, if you like, rows, uh, become part of, his, you know, part of his technique. 
uh, more and more as the 1960s and 70s went on. Britain certainly felt towards the end of his life, partly because of his illness and because of the way he, you know, he was he was very, uh, uh, I mean, an invalid really. He felt he was forgotten and and perhaps wasn't valued. But you know, if you talk now to composers. Even composers, dare I say it, like Harrison Birtwistle, whom Britain, who Britain knew his music very well in the 1960s, and you'd think Birtwistle and Britain had absolutely, you know, apart from being English and interested in certain subjects, not really a lot to do with each other. Actually, only two days ago, I heard Birtwistle speak very interestingly about Britain and about Britain's song cycles, particularly. Um, I think, you know, as time goes on, and here we are now celebrating the Britain centenary, and it's, what, 40 years almost since he died. He's occupied a kind of historic... There's a kind of historical perspective takes place. Um, I mean, you know, when I first got interested in music, Britain was still just about composing. Uh, in the early 1970s, I, I was starting to get interested in music. Um, I was very young, by the way. Uh, but the thing is now, for people who are in their 20s, you know, Britain is an historic figure in the same way that when I was in my 20s, Vaughan Williams could have been, you know, he could have been Mozart, really, to me. It's a long way back. And, and I think that does help to sort of filter out what's important, what's less important. I mean, I can't say now that in 200 years' time, will we still be listening to Britain? Well, I'd like to think we would be. I would, because I think there's a, there's a strength and power in the music and a kind of... The topics he chooses have universal themes and themes that are still relevant to us uh, in many, many ways. So I, I think it still will speak. I think we'll still be staging him. Because I, I, th I think, as a dramatist, he, he's, he's more and more remarkable every, every time I come to a piece. Still be singing him. Yeah. yeah. Fantastic music to sing. Yeah. Absolutely fantastic. I mean, I think there, there is a kind of alternative, not alternative, but, you know, throughout, when I was a student in the late 1970s, you know, really to be interested in Britain was considered ridiculous, quite ridiculous. And we all had to write music, which was totally unpleasant to listen to. And, you know, certainly had a kind of, uh, the best of it had a certain integrity, I suppose. But I think as time has gone on, you know, there is a kind of other side to, to 20th century music. And Britain, along with Shostakovich, actually, in the kind of, if we like, the traditional end of the market, have, a, have emerged as <coughs> composers now who are clearly very, very important. As important as, well, uh, Britain will be horrified if I said it, but as important as perhaps Stravinsky or Schoenberg or, or any of those people. The ironies of history. How many mm. people think of Darmstadt. Anyway, um, thank you all very much. And thank you, Philip, for tackling the, the most difficult question wow. of the evening, I think. Um, ladies and gentlemen, some thank yous. Thank you to all of you and to many of you who've been to a great many of these pre-performance talks. It's always splendid to see old friends returning. We shall return as old friends and new friends next season. The names of our guests will be up on the website uh, shortly. In the meantime, can I say thank you on your behalf to all the people who've been with us this evening. Deborah Warner, Philip Reed, Murray Hipkin and Charles Johnson. Thank you all very much.